data really is this form of power. Data science needs feminism because feminism is a way of thinking about power and the people who know how to analyze data and work with data, like we have a lot of power in the world. Voices of the Data Economy, a podcast supported by Ocean Protocol Foundation. We bring to you the voices shaping the data economy and challenging it at the same time. We talk about breaking down data silos and equalizing access to data for all. Hello and welcome. Today we have a very special guest with us and I'm so excited to introduce her. Welcome, Lauren. Hi there. Hi. Lauren is the co-author for a book called Data Feminism, which was recently launched and everybody's talking about it. If you don't know about it, then you should definitely listen to this episode and also pick up this book. Apart from that, Lauren is also a professor of quantitative theory and English. So welcome, Lauren, and we are so excited to have you today. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Uh, so how's your day going today? It's going okay. It's the morning here, so uh, hopefully it will turn out to be a good day. Uh, my daughter is a couple of feet away from me doing her virtual science camp, so if you hear someone else in the background, that's who that is. Yeah, I'm always very uh, eager to know how people get with writing a book and having a full-fledged life alongside family, work, plus writing. So probably I should take some tips with you after this podcast is over on how you went about this project of writing every day and finishing a book. Oh, well, that we we wrote the book before coronavirus. So that's a whole, that's literally another, it feels like a lifetime ago. So I have no advice for the present other than to say sympathy and solidarity with everyone else trying to struggle through. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So coming to the book, I mean, first of all, congratulations. Everybody's talking about it across media, across uh, social media. And I also got a copy for myself and thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, when I was reading the book, one of the main things that really struck me was that we just don't talk about feminism in the book. We also talk about other aspects like uh, racism, you know, how marginal uh, communities are treated and how data really affects or rather lack of data really affects their lives. So how did you really come to coining the term data feminism and using that for the title of the book? And we would love to understand data feminism from your lens. Sure. I mean, I think that's a really good place to start. And that's actually where we start in the introduction of the book. So feminism, you know, means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And it has a really, really long history. So you know, you can start by saying, you know, feminism is just this belief in the equality of the sexes or of genders. Um, you can also understand feminism as a commitment to action on behalf of making people of different genders equal. Um, and then there's also this sort of whole line of, it's like an intellectual tradition too, um, this whole line of theory and scholarship that has to do with understanding why inequality exists and also sort of what you can do about it. And the interesting thing when you look to this intellectual tradition is you see something happening, which is a shift from a focus just on gender to an emphasis on the reason why gender inequality exists. And what that does is it sort of shifts the focus from uh, sort of who people are and how they behave and how they experience the world to questions about power, um, sort of who has the power, what structures create systems of power in which individuals and groups experience either on the one hand inequality and oppression, and then on the other hand, uh, certain privileges and um, uh, additional abilities that other groups do not have. And so that's really important for thinking about feminism, because once you do this sort of do this like conceptual shift um, from thinking about specific identity characteristics to thinking about um, this question of power, it means that feminism as an analytic can be applied to all sorts of instances of inequality in the world. So not just about gender um, and gender discrimination and sexism and things like this, but also, as you mentioned, 
racism, ableism, um, sort of heteronormativity and the structures that constrain queer people, um, issues of uh, colonialism and the unequal structures that impact certain people in certain parts of the world, um, you know, all of these things. And so that's really, that's, that's one of the, if you sort of learn nothing from the book, if not that, it is that feminism is about so much more than gender. It starts with gender. It starts by thinking about gender. But the analytic framework that comes out of that thought process can be applied to all these other issues in the world. And so ultimately, that's really why we thought it was really valuable and why we centered feminism in the book, because it is feminism and sort of this lineage, lineage of thinking about power that lets us understand how to address these other instances. Well, you know, like gender and, right? So gender and all these other interest, uh, instances of inequality that, that happen in the world. Um, and I should say, just a point of clarification, you know, this, these, these ways of thinking about uh, feminism in terms of power, they have actually like a more specific intellectual lineage than just like feminists. It actually comes from a body of work called Black Feminism, which or originates with Black feminist scholars, mostly in the United States, but not universally, um, who really were primarily responsible for sort of doing the intellectual work of saying, look, you know, it's not just, you know, a question of identity but it's a question of all of these forces of power, these systems of power, whether it be governments or institutions um, that are all around us in the world um, that are sort of exerting these forces on people who, because of the identities they have, have experiences of oppression or privilege. Wow. Okay, so I think particularly what would be interesting is that if we could know about certain examples uh, from history but actually having data would have helped in solving problems. And I know you have cited some of these in your book as well, especially when it comes to black women and how it could have helped, you know, in solving certain healthcare problems that black women face or other marginalized groups. So tell us about some of these examples. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's a really, it's a really good question. And one of the main points that we make in the book is that data absolutely can help. But before I give you an example of that, I just I do want to make clear that data is not always the solution, right? You know, one of the other things that we talk about is sort of the burden of proof of quantitative large-scale proof that is often placed on some groups but not others. Um, and there's really interesting, you know, you can ask anyone who is a part of one of these groups, including, you know, like white women, of which I'm a part, um, but other groups too, you know about the need to sort of constantly be giving more evidence than just your own experience so that people believe you. And this requirement is placed on people in minoritized groups much more so than it is placed on the majoritized group. It's like if, you know, someone in power says this is happening to me, people tend to believe them. If someone who is not in power says this is happening to me, the response is often like, are you sure? Well, maybe it might be because of this other reason. And then the burden is placed on having to collate additional information so that people actually believe your lived experience. So with that caveat, I will say um, that, you know, one of the examples we talk about in the book, we actually picked to almost start the first chapter, like the, the content chapter after the introduction, is the example of um, Serena Williams' experience in childbirth. And it's a really interesting example because it shows how um, sort of these instances of both privilege and oppression come together in the same person, right? Like Serena Williams, uh, world famous athlete, tennis star, champion, fashion line starter, uh, mom, I follow her kid on Instagram. Um, but so, anyway, so, you know, she's very famous, um, has a lot of, has money, power, privilege in that way. Um, but she's also a black woman. And when she went to uh, give birth to her daughter, she actually nearly died in the, in the process of childbirth. Um, and this was because she was having some sort of complication, which she knew she was having. Um, because she had some history of like blood clots or something like that. Um, and she, she, you know, she's an athlete. She understands her body and said like, something is wrong with my body, but the doctors did not believe her. And she had to insist and insist many, many times again, per my comment earlier about sort of this need for proof. Um, she had to say like, give me, she needed like an ultrasound or a, some sort of scan like to, you, I need this test. I you need to like, something is not right. And they nearly didn't do it, but because she was Serena Williams and she gave a really interesting interview, I think it was like an glamour or what, like a mainstream fashion mag. 
And she said, she was like, it was only because I was Serena Williams that they listened to me and they performed the test. And lo and behold, she was having the complication and they rushed her. They gave her the blood thinners or whatever. And she survived. And she's this cute little baby. And here she is. Um, but, you know, the thing is, um, when it comes to Black women giving birth in the United States, Black women do not survive most of the time, not most of the time, but they have a far higher uh, rate of maternal mortality than white women do. And actually, in the United States, women, broadly considered, have a much higher rate of maternal mortality than people do around the world. And one of the interesting things that happened when this happened to Serena is that she went looking for information about this. She was like, I can't have been the only one. Um, and she actually, she posted a lot, you know, she's big on social media. So she posted a lot on social media and all these other black women were commenting on her posting. Like, you know, I know someone, this happened to me too. I know someone, my, this happened to my friend, this happened to my sister. Um, and so Serena Williams was prompted to look for more information. And when she went to go looking for more information, she discovered that it didn't exist. And there's actually, you know, she's not the only person to have looked at this. In the past couple of years, there's been uh, increased attention to the issue of maternal mortality in the United States. And one thing that has been revealed is that there's no national tracking system about uh, data about women who die in childbirth in the country in the way that there is about like hip replacements. Like if you get a hip replacement, the what type of hip replacement you get and what the surgery, what happened with the surgery and your outcome that gets entered into a national database. Same thing for, um, I believe like heart issues or like a national database of heart attacks or something. I mean, there's all these other types of medical situations where data, the data are collected so that some large scale view can be taken. And then an analyst, you know, bioinformatics people, biostats people can say, huh, there's an unusual thing happening there. Let's look into it. But in the United States, they, they just don't track it. Although actually there have been in the wake of this, um, this, uh, both Serena Williams and then some newspaper coverage about it, there's now moved to track this nationally. But that's this instance where it's like all these individuals, all these women either had the experience of these complications or they knew friends or family members who had actually died. But because the medical establishment was just didn't deem it important enough, um, the white, male-dominated medical establishment um, didn't deem it important enough. There just wasn't a systematic database in order to be able to say, this isn't just an isolated incident. This points to larger problems of care um, across the country. And so that's an instance where, you know, we say in the book, um, having these data, it doesn't erase the individual experience of, of people. Um, it doesn't say your experience is less important. But it does let these experiences be aggregated and point to larger structural problems, which in this case is the way in which racism enters the medical industry, the ways in which sexism relates or sort of enters the medical industry, and how this all results in disparate quality of care to different groups as they enter hospitals. Wow. Actually, we will also share an article in the when I write show notes for this podcast, it's by Harvard Business Review, in which they actually say that just because um, certain data points are small in number doesn't really mean that they don't have a big impact on lives. And a lot of times they are ignored. So it, it pretty much is in sync with what you just explained. And that brings me to my next question, which is discussed in your book as well, is about data visualization that how that's also a big part of the problem, you know, that we don't look at certain data sets and data ink ratio and what are the challenges right there. So if you could talk a bit about what, that, what are the challenges in the data visualization process or structure that the industry is following right now? Sure. I, that, you know, that's another good question. And it's interesting to connect to this one because we make the connection on the grounds of um, you know, what are the sort of what are you communicating with data? Um, what are you advocating for? And I think there, the problem, I would say, is that oftentimes when you or me as a visualization, visualization designer and Catherine and I both in different, uh, different ways and for different reasons, but also design visualizations, um, you know, the instinct and what you're told is to say, like, let me just see what the data show and then I'll just convey it, right? Like, I'll, I will be this sort of neutral conduit through which the truth of the data is revealed. And 
the, the mindset that you approach the data with tends to not be like, what's my angle? What's my argument? You're thinking what I really should be doing is just presenting the data to the viewer um, or the, the user if it's an interactive thing. Um, but that's never what's happening, right? Like data are always collected in a particular context for a particular purpose. You know, there's always like when you undertake a research project, you always have a hypothesis or if not a hypothesis, like a rationale for undertaking the work, right? Um, and when you analyze the data before you visualize it, you know, you get some conclusions, you get some results and those results have meaning. And again, it doesn't mean that you are being like biased or you're being, um, you know, you're not being uh, responsible with respect to the data. If anything, you're sort of being more accurate and more responsible by representing what the takeaway of the analyst, the analysis or the study or whatever, like wherever the data was coming from, um, what it was showing. And so in the book, we talk a lot about the need to push back on this sort of fundamental belief that visualizations are somehow like neutral and not themselves rhetorical objects when anyone who's ever designed a visualization like knows that they are, right? You are making choices, design choices all the time. Um, you know, whether it be like color size shape, whether it be what data to include, what data to exclude, whether it be what you use for the caption of your viz, like there's all sorts of choices that go into the design process. And these, again, are not choices that you should say like, oh no, I should just like have them randomly be generated, then it will be more neutral and objective. You should say, you should think really hard about the choices you're making and just make sure that they align with the objectives of, you know, the, the project that you're working on. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if people just had a checklist on how to go about this. And that pretty much brings me to, to the other thing I read in your book is about the seven principles. And most articles also talk about it, that seven principles to data feminism and how actually you can do that right. So uh, please tell our listeners, what are these seven principles and how can they actually be applied in in the process of data science. Great, thanks. So this is like the real test for me if I can really remember them. So just sort of by way of context. So, you know, in the, the book is structured around these seven principles. So each chapter is focused on one principle. And we give a lot of examples that help show sort of both what this principle is, where it's coming from, and then why it like why it matters. Um, and we came up with these really by thinking, you know, me and Catherine, by thinking about sort of all of the different ways in which we have understood and learn from feminism in the past. And these come from both from like activist communities or methods of organizing and building community and solidarity. Um, but then also this intellectual tradition that I was talking about before, sort of how have like scholars and theorists use feminism as a sort of a lens to understand issues in the world. And so we, we did, but this was like, this was most of the intellectual part of the project. And then we sat down and we sort of said, like, how could we distill these into principles that are most, um, really most sort of useful for people working with data? And our goal really was to sort of operationalize feminism, which I think, you know, some feminist scholars would think, uh, like, hear that word operationalize and think like, oh, that sounds bad. Um, but by that, we just mean, like, here are these really these sort of interesting and useful and valuable concepts that we really do think have uh, clear applications in the world. And so if we can translate them from like the realm of theory speak to the world of data science, we actually think they can sort of go on to have a positive impact. So the principles are, and then I always get nervous that I'm not going to remember them. I have them written here, so. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, you can, you can like, you can pose yes. me if I, if I get them wrong. But for the first two have to do with mm -hmm. power. Um, both examine power and challenge power. And so the first is like, if you want to challenge power, you need to understand how it works, like what you're dealing with. Um, and we talk in particular about uh, black feminist theory of power formulated by Patricia Hill Collins, who's a sociologist, um, called the matrix of domination, which is a theory of how power operates in the world, which takes into account um, both social and personal experience in addition to these sort of higher level, like ideological and government power. So that's examining power, challenging power. Um, the third principle has to do with elevating emotion um, coming from the sort of the longstanding association of uh, sort of 
the, the gendered connotations of emotion with a sort of women and sort of feminized areas of the world and reason with these sort of like masculinized um, areas of the world. And the point that we make here is not only is this not just a false binary, um, right? Like you don't need to, it's not an either or situation, um, but that both reason and emotion should be elevated together in the interest of producing sort of like better, um, more uh, sort of better, more accurate and more representative data analyses and visualizations. Um, the fourth principle sort of digs into this question of binaries. It's just about challenging binaries. Um, I believe we said rethink binaries and hierarchies. And this talks a little bit more about, and this is like a classic feminist theoretical move to say it's not just about the gender binary, um, you know, men versus women, A of all, there is more than one gender and B of all, there, you know, no single gender is better than any of the others. Um, and so that's like the fundamental feminist move. But then feminist theory has sort of taken this critique of binary classifications and said, we can use this to challenge all sorts of binaries that exist in the world, like reason and emotion, which I just talked about, um, like nature and culture, subject and object. You know, anytime you have this split, a feminist theorist would say, it's usually secretly a hierarchical division. And the reason for this hard line being placed between them is usually to preserve the power of the group or the position at the top. Um, and so like the reason why gender is a hierarchy is because men traditionally in position of positions of power are, they have something to gain by a division between men and women, right? Because it allows them to say like, here we are on the top with the power. But once you start to break down that binary, um, these questions of like who gets to hang on to power become harder to manage. Um, and the same thing is true for all sorts of other binaries in the world. Um, the fifth principle has to do with context, um, considering context um, in data work, right? Like where did the data come from? Um, who was doing the collecting? What communities are the data attempting to represent? Do they actually represent those communities? Have you talked to them? Um, things like that. Um, the sixth principle has to do with uh, embracing pluralism, um, which actually is related to this question of context also, um, but more to do with inviting multiple people and perspectives into the design process, um, trying to say, okay, the goal is not just to acknowledge the complicated and rich context from which any data source is produced, but if it's coming from somewhere, how about you invite the people who either produce the data, who are represented by the data, who have stakes in whatever the project uh, will will report on, like bring those people into the project to begin with. Um, the And then the seventh principle has to do with labor, um, sort of valuing all of the different forms of labor, meaning just like work, um, that go into data science. So ranging all the way from, you know, like the, in my case, like the undergraduate student RAs on my projects, you know, making sure they get credited for all the work that they do, data cleaning and so on, to, you know, in the data economy, Systems like Amazon Mechanical Turk, which rely on you know, anonymous individuals who are underpaid to do work that really supports so much of, the, especially the social science uh, data analyses that we see, and things like online content moderation, which is also data work, right, that like makes sure that, you know, you, there's no spam in your Facebook feed or even worse things, you know, um, like pornography uh, videos of you know, gruesome things, things like this, like this is all done by people. Um, and so again, you know, coming back to, this is from like feminist labor studies, which has to do with um, this idea of invisible labor, you know, which again, originated by thinking about labor, domestic labor, like housework that took place in the home, um, you know, and women were not, I were, they were, it wasn't valued in two ways. Like one, it wasn't valued in that they were not paid for it. Um, and two, it wasn't valued in that they were not credited for it, for it being helpful and allowing those who worked outside of the home to actually do their jobs, right? They'd come home and be fed and have the kids taken care of and whatever. And so, you know, since then, this is all from like the wages for housework movement in the 1960s and 70s. Um, you know, but since then, there's been like a, a much richer, um, a much richer analysis of uh, labor and forms of labor and how they don't always correspond to economic value in the world. And a lot of this is owed to um, these sort of feminist ideas of thinking about uh, economics and work. Now, um, yeah, so those are the principles. Wow, how much time did it take for you to actually um, have all these principles and finalize these seven? 
You know, we it took place over the course of a couple of years. We had initially um, in 2015 written a short paper actually for a, a visualization conference mm -hmm. where we had come up with some of these principles. And that, I would say, that was my and Catherine's first attempt at collaborating with each other. And, you know, some of these, if you spend a lot of time thinking about feminism, some of these are not hard to come up with. Yeah. But thinking about what was most important and which ones could sort of get... Yeah grouped into others, that took a little bit more time. And um, one thing that happened between uh, the first paper, which we wrote in 2015, and when we wrote, wrote the book, which we did mostly in 2017, 2018, um, we did, I think, I think what happened is that we took initially, you know, because power had been so, power is so central to feminist thinking, I think I'm not I'm not actually sure about this but I my recollection is that we didn't have a principle on power in the first paper because we thought it was everywhere and we're like oh we're always talking about power so we don't need a principle that is about power um but in writing the book um both when we drafted it and then actually in response to the peer review process um several people said to us like not only do you need a principle, we had a, we had one principle about power in the book, but someone said, I actually think you need more about power. And, and we had put it at the end because we had wanted in the draft, we had wanted it to be like the summary, like, so as you can see, it all is about power, but actually one of our, it also, the book also went through in addition to this sort of open peer review process, which we can talk about a little bit. It also went through sort of like formal, traditional, academic, anonymous peer review. And one of our anonymous peer reviewers um, said to us, like, I actually think power should be the first thing you talk about because it is so central. And we realized that, that was right. And so in the published version of the book, we not only moved the discussion of power to the beginning, but we divided it into two chapters so that we could spend enough time talking about it. Wow. This is what a discovery that I can't even imagine this book without talking about the principle of power. And, you know, that's what you see in most media right now. Everybody is talking about it whenever they talk about data feminism uh, in particular, in particularly. So uh, you just mentioned that you published the, the online draft of this book online uh, last year. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. So I guess, well, at this point, when did it come out? I believe we released it in, all time is so weird right now. Um, I believe we released it in, no, in very, very late 2018. I think that's the time frame, but it's, it's still up if you want to go take a look at it. Wow. And it was because um, MIT Press, which published our book, they were in the process of releasing essentially like a online open access scholarly publishing platform that enabled comments and images, you know, all the things that you would hope uh, online scholarly publishing should do. Mm -hmm. And they approached us and they were like, how would you feel about posting the draft of your book online? And it was so in line with our own thinking about sort of how knowledge is constructed and how me and Catherine as like two white women with fancy academic degrees don't know everything about the world. Um, you know, we really wanted to, we felt really good about this idea and it aligned so well with what we thought about the book, um, that we put it online for, for open comment. Um, and you can read, we have like a little bit more of a formal statement about why we did it and what we hope to gain. Um, and I will say we were a little bit worried about cranks on the internet being mean to us. Um, but we also felt that like we could handle it. You know, I mean, that's one thing. Again, like, you know, I have tenure. I like I'm we're pretty well established. We don't have, you know, they can't hurt us in the ways that it can. It is online criticism can hurt people in more vulnerable, vulnerable situations. Um, so we thought we could handle it. Um, and I will say the reality was that, like, people were exceedingly generous and kind. You know, we didn't get we got zero. I mean, there like some people. um sort of like whatever the equivalent of subtweeting is for a review of commenting on a book. Like some people like made blog posts about our book that did that linked to our book, but didn't comment on the book and said like, these people are nuts. Um, or they were like, are very dismissive. Um, but the people who did take the time to comment on the book and a lot of people did take time to comment on the book, um, you know, were really themselves invested in making the book better. And especially sort of speaking to, we got a lot of comments on, um, language, especially with respect to 
trans-inclusive language, which is sort of, we had really attempted to be inclusive in our language about all people, but I think issues of for trans people and by talking about trans people, it's like changing so quickly right now. So we had gotten some stuff wrong. Um, and so a lot of people helped us point that out. And I would say more conceptually, we got a lot of really helpful feedback about um, this idea of the deficit narrative, which I don't know is a concept that is familiar to you or to your readers or listeners. Um, but I think, you know, it was one that we sort of knew in the abstract, but didn't realize we were perpetuating as much as we were. Um, and I'll just, just to back up. So a deficit narrative is essentially this phenomenon that like, if there is a marginalized group that experiences the effects of structural oppression, there are a lot of bad things that happen to that group, right? And the tendency, because you want to help, is to say like, oh, these terrible things are happening. Look at this group. You know, they are poor. Their income level is low. Their education, their access to education is not as good. And so by calling out the ways in which certain oppressions are experienced by a certain group, you invertly end up sort of like reinscribing or reinforcing these negative stereotypes about a group, which again, do not owe, are not owed to the individual, are owed to the, the, the sort of the structural forces that these people and groups are subjected to. But by sort of like rehearsing this story over and over again, it can do more harm than good. And so the idea of the avoiding a deficit narrative is to say, like, be very attentive to when you are dwelling in the negative about a minoritized group and see if you can also try to uplift some of the work that points to the resilience of these communities, the strengths of these communities, the creativity of these communities, um, and make sure that you treat the positive aspects in equal measure. And you know, this is, you know, again, this is something that we, like, Catherine and I knew about. And like, had you asked me before, like, what is a deficit narrative, I could have said the same thing to you. But in the course of writing a book about oppression, we hadn't realized the extent to which we were focused so much on oppression. And it had the effect of making some of the groups that we focused on again and again and again in the book, because they do experience some of the worst aspects of structural oppression, like we had inadvertently perpetuated these deficit narratives. And so, that was a really, that way I feel like that was a really good comment that we got that I think helped us reshape the way in which we chose the examples and presented the examples in the book from the draft to the conclusion. Um, and if I may ask, like, as an author's journey, you know, when you published this online uh, draft, I mean, it's very brave to put your first draft out there. And uh, did you get any comments or any feedback? Or rather, I would say a discovery of a marginalized group that you didn't even think about earlier. But after comments, you were like, oh, we, were, we should have really thought about this in our book. And then it became a significant part of your book. I mean, that would be interesting even to know about that. Yeah, you know, I would say going back to this question of trans issues, like this is something that I think was really interesting for us, not because we didn't pay attention to it before, but because we thought we were doing a good job and we were actually doing like a quite mediocre job. And a lot of readers on the draft, um, some of them trans people themselves, others like don't know, um, pointed out the ways in which we either were not sort of up to date with our with our language or our examples were sort of inadvertently uh, trans exclusionary. And one of the ways in which, and this actually, one of the ways in which this was manifested throughout the book um, in the final version is that, you know, we deal so much with questions of gender in the book and we deal with a lot of examples that talk about gender, um, but almost all gender is collected in binary categories. Like, you know, are these people men or women? And in the examples that dealt with gender and the binary, we didn't even pay attention to the fact that they didn't collect data on trans or non-binary people. We just sort of like moved through the example, focused on the results. And one of our readers said like, you really need to note every single time if they are ignoring and erasing trans people here. And sometimes it's intentional, right? Like sometimes there's reasons why, especially if you're dealing with a small data set or a sensitive issue, there's real harm that can sometimes come from data collection. So it might be intentional. Um, but one of the readers said, like, you really, as if you want to be truly inclusive, you need to call out the places all the time when certain types of people are being erased. And so we went back in the book and every single time we had an example that dealt with gender, um, we tried to note, not as a judgment, but just as an observation, like whether or not the study included non-binary gender. 
And so that was something, and I think people may notice throughout the book, like there's often these sentences, like the study, you know, looks at men and women doing this particular thing or in this particular context. And there's a line like, the study does not consider non-binary gender. And that was absolutely because of readers saying, like, this is an important step that you can take to make people aware of what they could be doing if they considered the wider range of genders in the world. Um, so that's 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 one thing I would say. I mean, we did also get examples. I mean, just the sort of thinking about your location in Germany. You know, we are both U.S.-based scholars, and we did get a lot of comments like, "Hey, this is mostly focused on the U.S. Um, it's mostly focused on race in a U.S. context, or the sort of the intersection of gender and race in a U.S. context." We would like more examples from around the world, and. While we both tried in revising the book to expand the number of global examples that we had, um, we ultimately decided, like, look, our expertise is in the United States, and these are the issues that we know about. And we sort of reflecting our own um, locations, we just sort of owned up to our focus. Um, and we really, we hope that, like, if someone wants to write a book that is thinking about data feminism in a global context, or even in a more, in a national or regional context, but like a different nation or region, um, that they sort of take up that charge and find additional examples that would supplement their own. Um, so that would, that's sort of an example of a comment that we got that we heard, but ultimately we felt that like we couldn't make the book 500 pages long. And we ended up just trying to be clear about our focus rather than trying to, you know, like do this really important work, um, but was work that we thought sort of like would require a whole or like a much larger book or a larger project. Yeah. Uh, I think what, like, I would like to really make this remark rather is that your book is just not about people, not for people in the data or the tech world, but actually also people outside it. And at the same time, it's so refreshing for people in the data and the tech world to know that they have to collaborate with uh, so many other, I would say, communities, or rather, uh, you know, have to deal with things in an interdisciplinary way to come up with solutions. And that's the real problem right now in data science teams. I mean, it's not just about diversity, but also coming with the, they really don't have an academic, say, collaboration also coming up with solutions so uh, if you could talk a bit about the problem that's there in how data, data science teams actually come up with, the, with structuring data and then solutions to data and the kind of people they hire and what they could do better. And do they know that this is a problem or how is it spoken about right now? That, well, that's, yeah, that's, it's a good question. It's also a huge question. Um, you know, these questions, like they're all, they're all connected, right? These questions about like how we do data science, how, who does data science, like in whose interest does data science take place? Um, you know, we say in the book, actually, like these are all connected to questions of power. Um, you know, I would, will say one thing that we sort of, we don't talk about as much in the book, but I actually think has impact here is sort of, the way in which data, actually, no, we do talk about this. Um, data science, the skills of data science tend to emphasize like creativity and context hopping and the ability to sort of um, accumulate methods that you can then apply to a variety of different contexts. Um, and that's just, that's sort of, that's a problem both in how data science is taught. I think it's also not necessarily a problem, but it's an artifact of the fact that data science is not often taught at all, right? Like you're, the field is so new relatively that most people in these areas were trained in something else or something to the side and then have sort of trained themselves to uh, be a data scientist. Um, but the reality is that, you know, you can't just arbitrarily apply methods to a particular problem that you yourself have just encountered. You can't, the assumption should not be like, I know how to do this thing, therefore I will apply it to this topic that has just popped into my head. Like that's going about the problem wrong. And that's really like one of the, the biggest takeaways from the book, which is that any type of analysis, whether it be data driven, whether it be a qualitative data project, a quantitative data project, whether it be one that you think is going to be a data project, then you realize that it would be just better to like, you know, talk to someone or do an infographic or whatever, write a, write a journal article or a newspaper article. Um, they should always be coming 
from the question, like the issue, not the method. Um, and if you are someone who has particular skills and you want to use them in the sort of in the service of a particular issue, you should find out what other people have already been doing in that in that area before you say like, "Behold, my innovative solution." Um, there's this great term coined by the uh, data journalism professor Meredith Broussard, who's at NYU, called techno chauvinism, and it's this idea that um, like. The sort of this like this belief like technology can come in and solve all problems right um like chauvinistic in the in like a general sense this like assumption and like non-critical assumption that like we can just fix it tech will solve it right um and you know we've seen at this point again and again how this is like never the case you always need to think hard about the problem and the reality is like if you think hard about the problem you will realize that it's more complicated and if you are a good data scientist, you will like that. You will like that you're dealing with a complicated and nuanced problem that you can't just like solve by, you know, taking some off the shelf library or method or whatever and applying it to this new data set. Like you will like the idea that you need to talk to people and do some background research and maybe question the results that your model produces or something like that. Um, I forget why I was talking about that. <laughs> no, it, uh, no, I mean, it... getting on my soapbox. I was with you. I was with you in all of that. I mean, it's so interesting. And talking to you is, again, reminding me of the experience I had as a reader reading the book. And uh, so if you, so just to plug in to all our listeners, if you haven't really picked up the book, please do pick it up and, and know more about this. Um, okay, so uh, just like some in new terms or rather fun stuff that I came across when I was reading the book, was the terms that were used uh, regularly, I mean, not regularly, but something that new, something new that came to my mind was privilege hazard was one of the terms. And then I think in one of the interviews, you say that data is never neutral, or I mean, it's really, it's an oxymoron that data is neutral. So these two things, if you could talk a bit about what is a privilege? What is privilege hazard, actually? And why do you say that data is never neutral? Sure. Yeah. So the privilege hazard is a phrase that we coin in the introduction, but we use it throughout the book to talk about sort of the dangers or the hazards of privilege. Um, what this means is the people who experience the most privilege in the world are sort of the least equipped to identify instances of oppression when they happen. And it may not always be intentional. Um, but it has to do with the fact that the world is designed for people who occupy the dominant positions in society, and it is not designed for the people who occupy the more minoritized positions. And so those people and their experiences are the ones who point out the ways in which society is broken. Um, and we wanted to give a name to this because you see it happening again and again and again in, well, in the world. Um, but in the data science community in particular, like just the other week, um, there was uh, someone released, and I'm going to forget the details here, but it was an algorithm that took a image, it downsampled the image so that it became very pixelated, and then it would upsample the image again so that it became like uh, it, uh, it filled in the, the missing pixels of the image according to um, some sort of... Uh, neural network type, like some sort of aggregated sense of what should be there. Um, and the thing that, uh, so the, it was released to wide fanfare from the like machine learning community. And then individuals started trying it with test subjects. Um, like someone tried it on Barack Obama um, and it downsampled him and then it upsampled him into a white man. Um, and then someone tried it. I saw one about, I don't know if Ale uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez is like an international figure, um, but she's a very popular um, uh, liberal uh, representative, uh, U.S. Uh, congressperson. Um, but it, downs it, it downsampled her and then upsampled her again into someone who like erased uh, sort of any ethnic features, for lack of a better word, um, that she had. It essentially just taught, it like transformed everyone into these like white Anglo faces. And people started pointing this out. And the person who designed the algorithm, rather than say like, oh, God, um, I've, this has been a terrible oversight, sort of doubled down. 
and was like, well, that's just what the data, that's like, they're just, it's just the data. There's, there's bias in the data. Like the data is just some white faces. So that's why it happened. Um, and it prompted this like kind of upsetting because it was like the same conversation that happens all the time. It was upsetting because it was a black woman computer scientist who said like, this is a real problem. And the white man uh, innovator sort of dismissed her. Um, it was, it, it caused this big like sort of, uh, uh, stir on Twitter. Um, but it was a clear example of this privilege hazard in action, right? It's like the people who designed this algorithm were so focused on the math, on its ability to, it, it probably worked for them, right? Like they probably like, let me try it with my face. And it did work really well on white men. Um, and then they probably tried it on the data set and they didn't really care that it didn't work as well for other faces, nor did they think about like facial, like what could this be used for, right? And when you think about the uses of facial recognition in the world today, um, which were already bad pre-COVID, but now maybe even worse, um, like facial recognition is mostly used to surveil and police people from minoritized groups. So improving upon any sort of facial recognition technology, not such a great endeavor. Um, per, you know, like in even in the, the week since, there's been a couple of different statements uh, from different companies and uh, professional organizations, including the ACM, um, about not, not innovating more about facial recognition software just because it's overwhelmingly used to discriminate and surveil. Um, so anyway, so this is like a long way of saying like, this is like the privilege hazard in action. It was like this person undertaking this project, not thinking at all about any of the consequences for people unlike himself. And then when it happened, when so people pointed it out to him, you know, first he was surprised because again, you know, like never experienced it himself. And second was like defensive. And these are the types of situations that we're trying to avoid both by naming the phenomenon that leads to this, but also trying to say, um, don't be defensive. Like it may be true. Like if it happens enough, you should be, you should, it, it is a problem with you. Um, but it may just be that you need to learn from others who have experiences that are not your own, that those can inform your work. Um, so that's what we talk about with that. And I guess this idea of data not being neutral is connected to this example that I talked about. Um, and, uh, you know, and I guess also connected to some other things that I was talking about earlier, you know, are we in, as a society, sort of like Anglo, Euro, Western society, um, we tend to value sort of objectivity and uh, science and, well, we hope we should value science more. Um, you know, we tend to value these things that we perceive to be like objective and scientific and sort of bias free. Um, and data is a large part of this. Like we tend to look at data as somehow they're like inherently truthful um, or sort of inherently meaningful. But the point we make in the book is that data is certainly, data is valuable to be sure. Data can teach us a lot of things. But data is not inherently truthful, and it is certainly not inherently neutral. Like, data is always produced by people. Um, if not individuals creating data, then individuals making machines that collect data. Um, it is always coming from a context in which there are external conditions in the data collection environment that influence what types of data, what data is collected and what data is not. Um, all of these things go into should go into your analysis, right? And should make you understand that any results that you get from analyzing any particular data set are not like the be all and end all. They're not the answer, but they need to be understood uh, within the context of the larger environment in which both the data and the analysis were conducted. And I think, you know, the danger is that someone hears us saying that and thinks like, oh, they're saying that like data science isn't like it won't, it's not it's like, we can't trust it or like, it's all, you know, it's useless or everything is relative, right? And that's not the point at all. The point is that we actually do better data science if we pay attention to these questions like the context of the data collection environment, because they let us see more fully, like what exactly it is that we've found and how far our results can take us and in which areas they can be applied. And then they can also tell us like, what are the groups or contexts that do not apply? given the results of this data set, what do we need to collect more data on? What should we maybe not collect data on because it might bring individuals or groups harm um, and so on. So the ultimate result is actually like better and more accurate and more useful data science. Um, even if what we are questioning is like the inherent truth value or neutrality of the data themselves.
Wow, I mean, I can keep going. <laughs> we can keep talking for hours, um, you know, hours on this because there is still so much ground to cover. And I just feel that there are not enough discussions inside the tech world about this. There are a lot of discussions outside it, but not really inside. So coming, you know, I mean, you've done like a great, uh, it's a great contribution, I think, to the tech world that two people from within the industry and within the data science world have actually written about it. So, I mean, personally, thank you very much from, what do I say, a woman from who has been writing on the tech industry for so long. You know, uh, like coming to wrapping up things, um, we do this with most of our guests is that, like, give us a concise takeaway that you would want everybody to take away after this episode, basically something like we leave you with these thoughts and think about it. Sure. Um, well, I feel like that's a, that's a big challenge, but what I'll say this is that I'll say two things. So one, and I probably should have begun by saying this, but I'll end by saying this, you know, we see in the world today, like data really is this form of power, right? Like it's so powerful. And the people who know how to analyze data and work with data, like we have a lot of power in the world. And that really is the reason why Catherine and I think that data science needs feminism because feminism is a way of thinking about power and these imbalances of power that can enter in if you're not aware of how privilege and oppression operate in the world. So that would be my first takeaway, which is like all of us, because of the power that we hold, we need to be feminists and you should read the book. Um, but then the second thing that I'll say, and this is riffing on what I was saying just a minute ago, is that the end result, like the result is not a critical project. Sure, we point out a lot of problems in the world today and mistakes that are made when, or sort of potential pitfalls of doing data science if you're not aware of some of these problems. But the book was really written to be constructive and generative with the goal of doing better data science. And we really think that these principles, if you think about them, they can apply to almost all data work. And the result, and we like, we really believe this, the result will, will, it will result in like better, more interesting, more accurate, more ethical data science work. Um, and so that really, I think, is the most important thing. It's like, we're not, you know, by pointing out the problems in the world, we're not trying to pick on data scientists right now. We're trying to help them, help us um, do better work in the world. Yeah, I think the key message is we, we do need data science and we just need to know how to get better at it. Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That is for sure. That is for sure. Um, so thank you, Lauren. This has been a pleasure. And uh, for everybody who was listening, we will share most of the articles that we discussed uh, during the podcast. And I think also the 2015 paper that you wrote on visualization could be a nice link that we could share at the end. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Yeah, same here.